You can find information about this and future seminars on our website, kpfa.org slash support. You are listening to KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, KPFB 89.3 in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is um, 25 March. That's the European way of saying it, yes. March 25th, 2008. <laughs> time, time marches on and on and on, and our political scene is just a scream, yes, um, absurdo stupidisms, one after another. The culture wars are fierce, yes, Uh they're also funny. Uh, Our species is suicidal. It still just reacts before it thinks, you know. uh, It's as if Vietnam had never happened, as if Korea never happened, as if we were all just born yesterday. Somebody who is a Frank Lloyd Wright, he said, he said, yes, he said, 2% of the people think, 8% of the people think they think, 90% wouldn't be caught dead. (laughs) Anyway, too many of us, yes, just jump to conclusions. That's why propaganda works, you know. Keep it down to three syllables. And, you know, you got them, you got them hooked. Uh, Just say no. Ah, three syllables. I made a list the other day and I've lost it, but uh, I came up with nearly 50 three-syllable slogans that change the world. Uh, Anyway, you know how it is. Uh, We have allowed a whole generation to grow up without any knowledge. Actually, it's always been the case, but it does seem to have taken a dip there during, yes, I, I dated from Reagan, 1980. You know, uh, can't find themselves on a map. <laughs> People are imprinted nowadays. They say they're imprinted, impacted, but with opinions. Uh, an opinion, as we know, opinion is the death of knowledge. Uh, the great Harriet Martineau, she was a 19th century scholar over there in England. She came to the U.S. of A., in the 19th century. And she took one look around and she said, in this country, in these United States, she said, uh, 
The received religion is opinion. Yes, opinion is their religion. Got it, yes. Anyway, <laughs> I, I thought I heard. I'm not sure I heard right. Could it be that I heard on the radio, not our station, somebody else's station, let's see, who was it? Probably NPR. I heard a pundit say that John Kerry, you remember John Kerry ran for president a while back, uh, John Kerry said that he hadn't heard about the winter solstice. Yes, the winter soldiers, pardon me, the winter soldiers weekend. The winter solstice, yes, that's over with. Winter soldiers here, I've got it, it's been in, um, what is that? Uh, apparently, apparently these days, you you can switch it off, folks. You know, you you can you can avoid um, what's going on right in front of you. All you have to do is press the right buttons on your mass media, and you can shut out uh, everything that matters. You can limit yourself to certain input. Uh, you can listen to Rush Limbaugh 24 hours a day. Anyway. I don't see how a human being could have avoided the three days of traumatic tales told by those soldiers, the winter soldiers, the the guys who were disillusioned by their service in Iraq and Afghanistan. That is the most recent set of disillusioned military men. Of course, John Kerry was one of the originals, the original winter soldiers back in the day. Pardon me. Footnote here. The Winter Soldiers, it, it dates back from that poem about Winter Soldiers and Sunshine Patriots. That was from our revolution. But the first time that uh, the boys came up with this Winter Soldiers Conference, it was John Kerry uh, back in the day when Vietnam, the Vietnam War, had shattered our national psyche. You know, it was one of those episodes, they call them consciousness-raising episodes. How do you like that? Yeah. Then along came George Bush Sr., George the First, And after the first Gulf War, he said, we have kicked the Vietnam Syndrome. You know, kicked it in the posterior. Anyway, meaning we had got our manhood back. It's all about manhood. Anyway, I have to tell you, I can't take it anymore. I simply cannot handle this deja vu factor. I am 74 years of age, and I cannot be expected to watch these reruns forever. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to leave. What is it, that Jello Biafra line? He says, don't get out of the boat. Right, I'm going to get a boat on the high seas and never get out of the boat anyway. I have talked in the past too much about the Vietnam War. It destroyed my kid brother. Um, my father was pretty much, pretty much shattered by World War II, although that did have a different spin. He was a doctor over in the South Pacific. My kid brother, uh, I told his story. So many times, and I still get the shakes when I remember promising my mother to take care of him, right? Um, he, that is my, my kid brother, he was nine. Nine years old, Mikey was, when mother died, and I was 13, and uh, he is a quadriplegic, not 
from wounds in the war. He was a Navy frogman. Uh, he was terrified of swimming. I remember teaching him to swim down in La Jolla in Southern California. If only I hadn't taught him to be such a good swimmer. Anyway, he did underwater demolition and... Uh, most of his friends were either drowned or blown up after a decade in Vietnam. He came back to uh, the United States, an alcoholic. Um, his disability, his quadriplegia, was the result of a fight he had with the police in San Francisco. Police threw him down a stairwell, broke his neck, as far as I can get the story straight. In any case, he had lost his humanity by then, uh... I can't go on mourning his loss. What I feel now, what I feel is the pain that his three sons will carry all their lives. Wars do not end. This thing is never over. There is no, no closure. Right, closure, right. Aha. Uh -huh. See the, the graves, the earth, yes. That is not the end. There's always a warrior cast waiting in the wings to make a comeback. Yes, they get aroused, and uh, here we go again, from Rambo to, what was that fellow's name? Timothy McVeigh, I remember Timothy McVeigh, Euro-American white boys. Timothy McVeigh apparently tried to get in the uh, Green Berets, and he... he uh, Flunked the physical, my father always said, beware, be careful of these guys who flunked the physical. They'll come back at you anyway. Whether you're talking fantasy or fact or movies or reality, it's all part of a massive death culture. I like to date it from the Bronze Age. <laughs> the great feminist scholar Maria Gambutas, she went back before the Bronze Age and she found that human beings could live another way, that we had once lived without a military uh, uh, caste. That is, that um, there were uh, human settlements, you know, without, um, uh, without walls, without fortifications. Anyway, um, there's certainly been nothing else, at least since Rome, uh, there were a lot of uh, rehearsals for Rome, but I think Rome is the first best example. It's classic, you know. It's patriarchal and pagan, and it was my favorite television show since forever. <laughs> it's the, the, the perfect, yes, the perfect uh, paradigm for a world in which might makes right. Uh, let's see, last night I found... A Diane de Prima poem that I like because she calls it Revolutionary Letter Number 32 because she goes all the way back before Western civilization. She says, not Western civilization, but civilization itself. Civilization is the disease which is eating us, not the last 5,000 years, but the last 20,000 are the cancer. Not modern cities, but the city. Not capitalism, but ism 
art religion, once they're separate enough to be seen and named, named art, named religion, once they are not simply the daily acts of life which bring the rain, bring bread, heal, bring the herds close enough to hunt, birth the children, simply acts of song, the acts of power. Now lost to us these many years. Not killing a few white men will bring back power. <laughs> Not killing all the white men. But killing the white man in each of us. Killing the desire for brocade, for gold for champagne brandy which sends people out of the sun and out of their lives to create commodity for our pleasure. What claim do we have? What claim can we make on another's time, another's life blood? Show me a city which does not consume the air and water for miles around it. The cities of Egypt sucked the life of millions. Show me an artifact of city which has the power as flesh has power, as spirit of man has power, right? Diane de Prima, Revolutionary Letters. Hmm, Last Gas Press, a very nice little collection. I remember many years ago when teaching school and uh i put on the what was then called the blackboard now the chalkboard uh diane de prima's lines let's see the flesh the flesh knows better than the spirit what the soul has eyes for that got me into all kinds of trouble with my fundamentalist uh, religious students you know all that stuff about Religion and art, it's so interesting, isn't it? Uh, the sacred stuff, all that wonderful sacred stuff gets turned into a commodity. The commodification of man. I saw a young girl on television. She was on one of those shows, you know, one of those... Oh, I don't like to demean Oprah Winfrey. She's a good girl. But it was one of those shows where women talk about their bodies. And this young woman, she looked down at her legs and she said to the audience, she said, Look at those thighs. She said, Would you buy those thighs? <laughs> I thought of poor Elliot Spitzer, right? Uh, what was it? 4,500, whatever. Anyway. Uh, George Bernard Shaw used to say, uh, uh, yes, uh, it isn't a question. He said, you know, we've already decided what you are. The price has nothing to do with it. Okay, if you're for sale, you're for sale. In any case, uh, the pornographic mindset is definitely, definitely part of our death culture today. I try to think about it, and then I think, what is the use of thinking about it? Should I just do something about it? Are we supposed to do something violent in response to violence, you know? Commit immolation on the steps of the Pentagon? Doesn't seem very sensible. The Dalai Lama says, no, no violence. 
He says, don't do that, find another way. Uh, I think he's got the right idea, but I tell you, at this stage of the game, I'm hard put to figure it out. I thought that, well, you know, that literature and then later psychology, study of the human psyche, our pathology, you know, that we would straighten it all out. We would figure out why we did these things, you know, why we found war so sexy, made it part of our religion, and then I thought we could change it, you know. Oscar Wilde always said, Wars won't change by making such a fuss about how wicked and uh, uh, mean and uh, evil they are. He said it was only when we saw how silly they were, how absurd, you know. He said that uh, men were terrified of being laughed at. Uh, and we all know that um, the mawkish sentimentality that comes after violence, yes, if you laugh at that, if you make fun of that suffering, uh, well, that is the final, the final insult. They will kill you. Uh, sadism is serious stuff, folks, as we all know. <laughs> yes. I was going to read you a bunch more poetry by Muriel Ruckhauser and it's just, it's too hard, it's too sad, it's too grim, I can't take it. I recommend to those of you who think you need more information, God knows, I recommend Barbara Ehrenreich. She wrote a book called Blood Rights, R-I-T-E-S, The Religion of War. And I think she's done the best job that a modern writer could do, making us or helping us to understand why uh, war becomes a religion for so many men and now for so many women. Uh, I was looking at her work again the other day. Uh, I was thinking about the fact. We have to face the facts. Let us seek uh, truth from facts, yes. That we now have something called women's suicide bombers. Well, that was a hard one for me. I did not believe that women were capable of that sort of behavior, you know, that kamikaze stuff. Uh, I I didn't understand. I didn't uh, realize that the complicity of women, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> last night I was watching uh, the third episode of John Adams, and there was Abigail Adams. Her daughter says, Mother, why do they get away with it? How do they get to do it all? Why do they uh, run the world? And Abigail Adams says, Because we let them, dear. <laughs> anyway, I, I loved, actually, check it out. I, I love uh, the series about John Adams. It's a seven-hour series, and it will be running now all summer. The third episode gave us Benjamin Franklin uh, taking baths with elderly women in France. Uh, you remember, he was the one who said that uh, he liked to, uh, well, he, he, he liked the boudoir of older women because, well, he said they were so grateful for one thing. He said that while their faces might be wrinkled, 
the other parts were always uh, delectable. In any case, uh, the actor playing Ben Franklin is shown, actually, he's playing chess with this older French woman, and he tries to explain to John Adams that you can get a lot of diplomacy done in the boudoir. Uh, Actually, I'm sure there'll be a lot of fuss about this series because it shows our uh, forefathers, the guys that um, came up with this notion of revolution in America uh, as the flawed and glorious human beings that they were. Uh, And they certainly, of course, made war of religion. But they were operating in the days when, for the most part, it was the soldiers who died in wars. Today, of course, it is the civilians, so it has kind of, mm-hmm, it has kind of become, what is the word, uh, bad form. Um, there was a fellow, uh, he was in charge of aerial bombing sometime before World War I, an Italian, and he said, well, now that I've invented aerial bombing, wars will end, because, of course, that will mean the uh, 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 destruction of civilian populations and so it will be seen to be uh, counterproductive and ineffective and wars will cease. Anyway, Barbara Ehrenreich uh, was born back in 1941, the day that World War II started, yes. She is a leading feminist and in blood rights, she has many things to say. I thought maybe I'd just read you a little, little tidbit here. Uh, no one needs to be told that the warrior culture can be, uh, what is that, uh, uh, it's it's perennial as the grass, you know, uh, what was it, a a woman the other day, she was talking about motherhood, and she said she thought her little boy had been born saying, vroom, vroom, (laughs) I thought that too. I think you can change room, room into something that is not necessarily, uh, uh, that necessarily results in death. I think you can room, room to the moon or something more interesting. Uh, anyway, Barbara Ehrenreich writes that not only warriors are privileged to undergo the profound psychological transformation that separates peace from war, She writes that whole societies may be swept into a kind of altered state marked by emotional intensity and a fixation on totems representative of the the collectivity, the sacred images, the implements, or, in our own time, yellow ribbons and flags. (laughs) My footnote here. Um... The late, great Maggie Schweitzer, who was um, a programmer here on KPFA, she was always writing these wonderful songs. Uh, uh, Gutenberg's Babies was my favorite, but the last one she wrote that I still have a copy of, yes, it led with the line, yes, tie a yellow ribbon round your big red neck. We We had some feedback from that one. People were upset. Tie a yellow ribbon round your big redneck. In any case, uh, the sacred images and the implements, uh, the flags, the yellow ribbons. Okay, the onset of World War I, for example, inspired a veritable frenzy of enthusiasm among non-combatants and potential recruits alike. 
And it was not an enthusiasm for killing or loot or imperialist expansion, but something far more uplifting and worthy. In Britain, the public had been overwhelmingly opposed to involvement until the moment war was declared, at which time screening crowds poured into the streets and surrounded Buckingham Palace for days. In Berlin, the crowds poured out as though a human river had burst its banks and flooded the world. In St. Petersburg, a mob burned the furnishings of the German embassy while women ripped off their dresses and offered them to soldiers in the middle of a public square. <laughs> when the United States entered the war, that would have been April 6, 1917, the audience at the New York Metropolitan Opera House stood up and greeted the announcement with long and loud cheers. Hardly anyone managed to maintain their composure in the face of the oncoming hostilities. <laughs> oh, Rilke was moved to write a series of poems extolling war. Anatole France offered to enlist at age 70. Isadora Duncan, you remember Isadora Duncan, the famous uh, modern dancer. Isadora Duncan recalled being all flame and fire over the war. Socialists rallied to their various nations' flags, abandoning the international working class overnight. <laughs> Many feminists, such as England's Isabella Pankhurst, set the struggle for suffrage aside for an equally militant jingoism and contented themselves with organizing women to support the war effort. Ah, <laughs> yes. Get behind our guys. One British suffragette wrote, The war is so horribly exciting. Huh. But I cannot live on it, she said. It is like being drunk all day. Even pacifists like the German novelists Stefan Zweig felt a temptation to put aside their scruples and join this great awakening of the masses prompted by war. In India, a young Gandhi recruited his countrymen to join the British army. Even Freud, Sigmund Freud, briefly lost perspective, quote, giving all his libido to Austria-Hungary, unquote. <laughs> but Freud failed to reflect on his own enthusiasm. Otherwise, he would never have hypothesized that men are driven to war by some cruel and murderous instinct. The emotions that overwhelmed Europe in 1914 had little to do with rage or hatred or greed. Rather, they were among the noblest feelings human beings are fortunate enough to experience. Feelings of generosity, community, and submergence in a great and worthy cause. There was little difference, in fact, between the fervor that greeted the war and the emotional underpinnings of the socialist movement, which promised land or bread and peace. <laughs> Here is a famous historian, uh, 
Albert O. Hirschman wrote, For important sectors of the middle and upper classes, the war came as a release from boredom and emptiness, as a promise of the longed-for community that would transcend social class. Just after the war, the American psychologist G.E. Patridge observed that the mood of war had been, above all, one of ecstasy. This despite the war's acknowledged horrors. Okay, Barbara Ehrenreich goes on to write at great length about the thrill, about the joy of overcoming the pain of death. Let's face it, the human animal is bored to tears, and if he doesn't have uh, one kind of ecstasy, he will go and find himself another. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air again Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In darkness from the ones who in light, light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. The paid staff of 94.1 KPFA, listener sponsor Pacifica Radio, is affiliated with the Communications Workers of America, CWA, Local 9415. You're listening to KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno.